Thank you, Hannah. Romans 7 is our focus this morning. We'd invite you to turn there. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we'd love to get those from you. Ron or Kurt. Kurt will pick those up and we will pray for you this week. Romans chapter 7. In his classic Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis um, argued that all people recognize and feel bound by a certain moral standard. Lewis argued this compulsion is called the law of human nature, and he mentioned several examples of how this moral standard surfaces even with unbelieving um, cultures. Uh, It's seen when people say things like, how'd you like it if someone else did that to you? Or, that's my seat, I was there first. Or, leave him alone, he's not doing you any harm. Or, give me a piece of your orange, Uh, I gave you some of mine. (laughs) Or, come on, you promised. Where did that come from? There's within the human makeup and design a desire for what is right and some intrinsic knowledge of it. Lewis argued that statements like this show that all people everywhere recognize a standard of behavior to which they and others are supposed to measure up. The Apostle Paul began the letter of Romans with this idea of um, uh, really presenting the greatest, the greatest human problem and that is sin. And he started with the Gentile worldview in chapter 1. And um, he started in chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. And at the core of, core of his argument was that the Gentile world has received revelation from God. How has this world received revelation? Through creation. There's been a natural revelation that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky shows his handiwork and God has spoken and everyone knows there really is a creator and to that revelation, God's judgment is upon those who suppress it and turn it into idolatry and twist it and defile it. Yet within every human being, there, there's the image of God. Marred by sin, to be sure, but within that, that image is a sense of justice and conscience and understanding of what is right. Yet we are powerless to act on it consistently and without error. So the Gentile world has taken the revelation that there is a God who's all-powerful. His power is seen in creation, and we've taken that revelation and suppressed it and made ludicrous ideologies that say there is no God. The Jews, however... They had received the law of God. It was specific. No other gods before me, says the Lord. No idols. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. The Jews had received that. And in reading the biblical references about the law, we could be tempted to say it's all bad. That's certainly not the way the law is presented. It is, we are not able to be saved by the law because all we can claim is that we've broken it. If we're guilty of breaking it at one point, James wrote in James chapter 2 in the New Testament, we're guilty of all of the law. 
But there are some incredible statements in the Old Testament about the law. Think of Psalm 19, which I quoted just a moment ago. It begins with the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows us handiwork. But it says in, in verse 7, moving from natural revelation to specific revelation, David writes, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. And on it goes. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon said in chapter 12, the conclusion when all is heard is fear God and keep his commandments. In the book of Deuteronomy, which I believe Moses was the author, it says in chapter 17, those who would serve as kings in Israel were responsible for doing something very vital to the success of their reign. It says in Deuteronomy 17, 18, and 19, the king shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life. And Joshua 1, 8, Joshua Receive this message from the Lord. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, it, shall, it, it, it should not leave you, Joshua, but you shall meditate upon it day and night. Then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. So whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, all of us fall short of God's standard and we're aware of, that we fall short of other standards as well. Don't we? All of us have to deal with distractions in life. We have these wonderful goals and we, we find that so often we don't meet them. I have more encouragement to come. <laughs> but I was reminded of this segment in a, a biography I read years ago, David McCullough's biography of John Adams, the second president of the United States. And I can so relate to this. When John Adams was in college in 1754, he wrote in his journal, I'm resolved to rise with the sun and to study scriptures Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday mornings, and to study some Latin author the other three mornings, noons and nights. I intend to read English authors. I will rouse up my mind and fix my attention. I will stand collected within myself and think upon what I read and what I see. I will strive with all my soul to be something more than persons who have had less advantages than myself. And then there was the next day's entry. The next morning he slept till seven and had one line in his journal. A very rainy day dreamed away the time. We're aware of that, aren't we? Something's just amiss. <laughs> the goals we long to do, we hear that in Paul's writings, that which I wanted in this very chapter, that which I want to do, I don't do. And that which I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And his answer, praise be to God for Jesus Christ. Not a list, a person. He's my deliverer. He is the one who has set me free. And so we come to this seventh chapter and Paul has gone on record many times by saying the role of the law is a schoolmaster, a tutor to lead us to whom? Jesus Christ. 
The law leads us to Christ. What's it, what's it saying to us? It, it's showing God's standards, God's holiness, and communicating to us that we really do fall short. And that we would see the wonder of what God has done through Christ who kept the law of God perfectly and came our, became our all-sufficient Savior. So when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said in chapter 1, Now we know that the law is good if it's used lawfully. What does that mean? Well, if, it, if we're seeing it for what it is, namely that it's exposing our hearts to us, it's exposing our need for a savior, it's uh, convicting us of self-righteousness, and we find our relief in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's always two dangers when we look at the law. And that is one, becoming a legalist like the Pharisees, which heaps great burdens on our performance for approval and salvation that can never deliver. And the second danger is license. Legalism or license, and license basically says, I've been saved by grace, I'm free to live however I want, don't talk to me about any moral constraints, I'm going to live the life I want to live, I'm under grace. And that's wrong too. In fact, Romans 6 was written for that very purpose, that we would no longer present ourselves to God as slaves of unrighteousness, but as slaves of righteousness. We've been bought with a price and we're to honor him. So what's this issue with the law? We're made up primarily of Gentiles in this gathering. What's the big deal? Why is this important? Well, I mentioned this, that Paul refers to the law 23 times in Romans 7. Eight times in verses 1 through 6. He seems to be writing with a great awareness that believers have many questions about the law. Maybe you have questions about the law. How, how am I to function in, in light of God's law? How am I to understand that? And what he says in these first six verses is how we are freed from the bondage and the penalty that comes from breaking God's law. Jesus never spoke disparagingly about God's law. He said in the Sermon on the Mount that he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, the law and the prophets. So let's get into the text after that lengthy introduction, and let's break it down in this way. Uh, What I'd like for us to see first in verses one through three is that we are free from the bondage of being under the law. What does that mean? That we are freed. And I was praying this week, as I was looking at this text, Lord, I pray that that freedom would come. I pray that it would come to your life and my life. And he begins by saying in verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Probably he's referencing the Jews here who had received the law, who had received the oracles of God. But I think in a general sense, it's a universal problem whether you're a Jew or a Gentile and that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So Paul begins with an illustration of the law of a married couple. Maybe you were wondering what that is. Verses two and three really have nothing to do with marriage. It's just stating an illustration. Stating an illustration. When death comes in a marriage, the covenant bond is not binding any longer. 
The law that binds a, a lifetime commitment is no longer binding. So from God's intention, God's purposes, his creative order from the beginning is when he brought Adam and Eve together, one man, one woman for a lifetime. Later, divorce provisions would be given, but he said it was because of the hardness of your heart that God gave these provisions. Things happen in a fallen world, don't they? Things we would never want, things we, we weep over. And I think divorce falls into that category. Having talked among God's people with those who've gone through a divorce they did not want because of the covenant-shattering behavior of their spouse, And there, there was that provision given for those who were wronged in that covenant. But that doesn't mean that God d- doesn't hate divorce. He has gone on record that he does hate it. And there is grace, even in that painful uh, breaking up of a marriage. I, here he's talking that when death comes in a marriage, the covenant bond is, is not binding any longer. Paul mentioned this in 1 Corinthians 7 where he says a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's freed to be remarried. The warnings in scripture really uh, on, on divorce and having an unbiblical grounds for a divorce um, are, are quite sobering. But here he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, if, if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Likewise, when a believer dies in Christ, the law is not binding any longer. So this isn't referring to physical death. This is referring to we died in Jesus Christ, which was the point of chapter 6. And because we've died in him, we've been freed from the law. Those who've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ have died with Christ through faith. And this death is a death to the law so that it's not binding anymore. If you're without Christ, you're accountable for breaking God's law. The wonder and the glory of the gospel is on that day when we give an account to God for our life, we have an advocate. We are not held responsible for the breaking of the law in the sense that Christ has paid for our sins, past, present, and future. And you may say, well, wow, again, you know, you're bringing that up again. That's kind of risky. Not rightly understood. This justification by faith, which is Paul's point here, should lead, lead to greater righteousness and obedience. What should this new relationship in Christ produce in your life and in mine? More sin? God forbid. Verse 4 answers it. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. And that's where this illustration of marriage comes in. With a death to, to the law, we, we, we become married to another, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. In order that, look at the last part of verse 4, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So we died to the law and we're united with Christ. In one sense, he's, he's, he's our new husband. And we see that parallel with Christ uh, and the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5, that Christ is the bridegroom of his church. New authority and we're joined to him who is alive forevermore. He's a living Savior 
um, who is sovereign over all, and we are set free from the bondage of our own failures, oh, I pray that God would be the lifter of your head today, that you would not bear uh, burdens that he never intended for you to carry, and that it would lead you to him. We're united to a Savior who's alive, and through his redeeming power and love, we are in the process of being shaped into his image. So as we follow the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 and now in 7, the illustration of marriage is to lead us to evidence of our salvation, namely that we would bear fruit uh, for God, and we were saved for that purpose that we would not go on sinning, but abide in Christ. And when we abide in him, changes happen, sometimes ever so slowly. Nevertheless, that's the projection of sanctification, that we're moving onward in obedience to Christ until that day when our sanctification is complete, which is when? When you retire? (laughs) No. Until we're, we're in his presence. But until then, we're, we're in this process of putting sin aside and taking on obedience and presenting ourselves to God. So with this change, what happens? When, when someone comes to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, changes come. A renewed mind comes. There, there, there's an appetite for the word. There are new habits that come into your life. Where before the thought of, I'm, you mean, I got to go to church a little before nine and it, la- it doesn't let out till noon? Man, that's too radical. I'm, there's no way I'm doing that. I'll come in from time to time, get a little worship service and then be gone. True conversion brings an appetite to where I want to be with my brothers and sisters. I want to hear the word of God. It's not a a chore for me to get up in the morning and to seek him in his word. Yes, some devotions have more meaning than others. But nevertheless, I know I need to be in his presence. I need to serve the Lord with gladness. I have often said around here, if you... If you're grumbling about what you're doing, stop it. The offering plate comes around and you begrudge putting, keep your check. You bothered about some service in the Lord, stop it. Get your heart right with the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be an instrument of righteousness. I don't want to get to be old and crabby. Get off the grass. It's too easy to get that way when you get older. No. We want a renewed mind. We want a joyful heart. We want new desires, new habits, new goals that all come from the power of Christ within us. These changes are an inside job. An inner work of the Holy Spirit. Look at... Turn back with me to chapter 5, verse 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts. That's the believer. That's the one who has experienced what verse 1 says. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, God loves, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Believer, 
The Spirit of the living God, and we'll close with this truth, but the Spirit of God dwells within us. Greater is He that is in us to bring these changes as we present ourselves to Him from the inside out by the Spirit, not the outside in the letter of the law, as verse 6 says. Why did we die to the law? Why are we released from the law? Why are, why are we not under the law so that we may sin all the more? God forbid. So that we may serve. Death to the law makes servants. Death to the law makes servants, not greater sinners. So I, I want to just look at this idea back in chapter 7 where he talks about being under the law. We are not under the law. What, is that, what does that mean? We're not under the, in Christ, we're not under, under the law. I, I've been exposed to the teaching of a pastor named Ray Stedman who pastored in California, Peninsula Bible Church for many years. And he gives four proofs that all of us are naturally under the law apart from Christ. He he indicates how we can know that. And I want you to feel a little bit about what we've been set free from. And sometimes it residually comes back into our life and we have to deal with it. But he mentions four things. How do we know we're under the law? Well, the first would be we're proud of our achievements. We've got a pride problem. We all recognize a standard that we have achieved and others haven't and are pointing to some area of moral achievement in our life. In other words, we like to brag about our accomplishments. Stedman writes, the law reveals failure. Therefore, one of the first marks of a person who is living under the law is that he's always pointing to how well he's doing. You ever talk to somebody like that? Maybe you find yourself doing that in conversation. Wow, I spoke too much about myself. Or you talk to somebody who goes on and on and on in a monologue about their life and you know in essence you feel the conclusion is well now that I've shared how great I am what do you think about how great I am that's an exaggeration but we all deal with this pride issue we're proud of our achievements here's a second reason that really shows that we're under the law we're critical of others that shameless pathetic habit of putting others down Bringing up failures of others is a sign that we're under the law and it's epidemic in our, in our world. It's a twisted way. In a twisted way, we're, we're usually most critical of others in those areas where we fall short. And that often surfaces in my own evaluation of my heart in my parenting. most critical of others in those areas where I fall short. It's the proud who most hate pride in others. Cheaters are often most paranoid about being cheated by others. Here's a third reason Stedman mentions about being under the law. We're reluctant to admit our own failures. James Boyce writes, this is the reverse side of boasting. It is because we feel the weight of the law over us that we attempt to cover up our failures. To name drop, 
to frame how other people are going to think about us if we did not sense ourselves to be under the law and rightly under the law why would we bother we would not deny breaking a standard the validity of which we do not recognize here's a third reason that I think probably will be quite evident to all of us and that is that we're under the law we suffer from depression discouragement and defeat this shows how empty it is for people to try to raise moral standards merely by enacting and proclaiming new laws what we need are new laws well maybe so but that's not going to resolve the the problem of the human heart (laughs) we need something that can only happen by God's power to save and to redeem and to set us free. We live in a day of plummeting lows. Depression seems to be the official symptom of our age. Even with a God-ignoring and God-belittling mindset, the world is very much aware of the emptiness of life. Suicide is always a gripping reminder of the hopelessness of humanity, self-destructive behavior. 30 years ago, next month, I remember being called to a home of a family I pastored where a family guest had hung himself in their barn. And being the first to arrive on the scene with blaring music that was turned up prior to him, taking his life, blaring music. It, was, it, it will always be etched in my mind, that scene early in my pastoral ministry that life is warfare. I was asked to preach that funeral. How do you do that? What do you say? What do you say to a family who for all their life they're going to ask why? And they could ask it a million times and there will be no clarion word from, from heaven What's the answer? The only answer I know is the one given in John 6 where Jesus said to the disciples, shall you also go away, walk away from me? And Peter spoke for us all when he said, where shall I go? You have the words of eternal, where are we going to go? He has the words of eternal life. That's the only way I know to cope with the wise in this world. It really comes to who we look to and we rest in him even when it's all messed up. One juvenile judge in California, I'll always remember this commentary, spoken years ago actually, sitting on the bench in juvenile court in California. It becomes very disturbing to see the hollow eyes and expressions on juveniles when they are so totally disenfranchised, so totally disaffected, so totally removed from the system that there is absolutely no hope whatsoever. Profound discouragements, paralyzing defeats. Paul was familiar with all of these things. In reading 2 Corinthians, he said in chapter 1, verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened, Paul said, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. 
God gave us more than we could handle, is what he's saying. He really did give us more than we can handle so that we would find our sufficiency and strength in him alone. I've had this experience a few times in reading classic Christian books, wondering why, why, why is this a classic? Why is everybody talking about this? And it happened when I read Knowing God by J.I. Packer about chapter three. Oh, this is why, this is why it's a, it, it's a famous book. Um, that way with, uh, with others as well. That happened in reading Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression. Why is that a classic? Well, in the end of chapter two, I begin, oh, now I understand. And in it, Lloyd-Jones leads us back to Psalm 42, which begins in this way. Um, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. Sounds like it might be a wonderful saying to put on a coffee mug, but really it's not. It's, It's one of great desperation. This deer is thirsty. And it's been on the run, maybe something chasing it. And it's longing and, and it, it, there's a struggle there. And he goes on to say, my, my soul thirsts for you, O God, but heaven seems to be brass. I can't seem to break through. And the psalmist continued, my tears have been my food day and night. And while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? The psalmist with this refrain, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, hope in him. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You keep seeking him in your ever slow sanctification. This is our hope, and that's point one. Let's move on to point two, which isn't as long. Set free to bear fruit for God. Verse four, set free to bear fruit. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. We're not accountable to the law in the sense we were before Christ has lifted that, but now we have a savior who we belong to, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. In order that we might bear fruit for God, not more sin, more obedience, more love, more joy. Listen to John Piper here. If you are in Christ, justified and married to your Savior, Jesus, you bear fruit for God. That means that new desires and attitudes and choices and actions grow like fruit from this all-satisfying relationship between you and your living husband, Jesus Christ. You can understand the concern with someone who says, I'm a Christian and has no desire for obedience, no desire for the things of God. And the early... um, morning hours this morning, I was thinking of the urgency of the pastorate and the need for shepherds to be faithful with this kind of challenging with God's people because we're prone to wander and get over here and start eating on things that are not good and really we coming to passages like this, it really is a, a shepherding from the great shepherd to really seek to honor him. And I was thinking this morning, if how many people talk like this to you? To speak about the freedom we know in Christ and 
the all-consuming call of what it means to be a, a follower of him. There's a great tragedy, friends, when the church gathers and substitutes Christ for something else. It happens all the time. What happens when you're a part of a church that's not faithful to the gospel, not faithful to the word, not faithful to call you to bear fruit for God in the way that he outlines and by abiding with him and walking with him. I'll tell you what happens. You have a group of people who live their life and they, they're ignorant of the scriptures and they don't know how to witness and a spirit-filled prayer meeting is an anomaly to them and they, they don't possess the mind of Christ and they remain baffled by the whole concept of praise and they give God the scraps of their time and of their bank account and that's called Christianity. That's not Christianity. That's a perversion. That's a substitute. We're called to bear fruit for God. And that's the call here. Let's close with this. Thirdly, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, sweet Holy Spirit who dwells within the believer, who is active in our regeneration that we would be born again by the Spirit of God Verse five, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Notice the contrast. Bearing fruit for God, bearing fruit for death. But now, verse six, we are released from the law. We're, we, we, we've been set free. Having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Our rescue comes not in a new list. <laughs> Our rescue comes in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who kept the law of God perfectly. Our justification by faith has, has brought us a righteousness outside of ourselves in the new way of the spirit some of the most comforting verses in the Bible are in John chapter 14. And Jesus said to the disciples before he left them, I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to give another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus predicted a day when the Spirit of God would dwell within, not in temples made with hands, but within the believer, and that we are a temple of the living God, and that he has written his law on our hearts, not on tablets of stone. In this ongoing work of the Spirit, Paul mentions there are 27 references to the Holy Spirit as the power of being conformed into the image of Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit. He mentions one here in verse six, the new way of the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, yielded to the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, all of these commands that we find in the New Testament. These are amazing promises. Life in the Spirit is one of the most treasured blessings we can know. The Spirit has been poured into our hearts. The love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which supplies God's power to our frail life. So as we come to the close of the service, I would urge a prayer be brought into our, our daily lives. Lord, sanctify me. 
Empower me by your spirit. Fill me for today's service. Through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can live pleasing and obedient lives to him. Our Our minds are continually renewed by the promises of God. We're empowered to overcome sin. We're led as children of God. We're adopted into God's forever family. And every moment of every day, the Spirit lives to make intercession for us. Romans 8, 26. We're not under law. We've been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which puts within us a longing to obey the things God has commanded. If you're asking today, what must happen for me to be a part of this great salvation? What needs to happen for me to be a part of this great change that is known in Christ? And the response is simple, turn from your sins and call out to him and trust in him, believing that he has died to redeem you forever. And he will come to you and he will save you. There's a a poem I refer to often when I talk about the law and we'll close with this. God's people, we, we glory in Christ where we find all the promises of God to be a resounding yes. Listen to this poem. Under the law with its tenfold lash. Reference to the Ten Commandments. Learning, alas, how true. That the more I tried, the sooner I died, while the law cried, you, you, you. Hopelessly still did the battle rage, and, O wretched man, my cry, and deliverance sought by some penance bought, while my soul cried, I, I, I. Then came a day when my struggle ceased, and trembling in every limb, at the foot of a tree where one died for me, my heart sighed, him, him, him. Come to him now. Live for him with all your energy and heart and life. You will not be disappointed in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the promises of the gospel that come to us fresh and new this morning. Every time we open your word, we're reminded of your love for us, your care for us, your promises to us. And I pray in these closing moments that our hearts would just be yielded to you. Thank you for setting us free from the bondage of sin and death. Lawbreakers as we are, we're new in Christ and to him we look. May this time be marked by your freedom And may we respond in faith and obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.